I begin, begin with a quote from the Methodist scholar Leonard Sweet, who in essence said, in the 16th century church, the effort was to save the church in the Protestant Reformation, that is, from the arts. The prevailing objection was that in the Protestant movement, the arts were becoming the object of worship versus the Lord becoming the subject of worship. The emerging objection was the church relies too heavily on the arts, the images, the icons of the Bible story, rather than living out the truth of the story. And then Leonard Sweet said, Today, in the 21st century, the church will be saved by or with the arts. I never forgot that quote. I think there's a lot of truth to it. So pottery is one type of art. And maybe we have some experienced potters here today. I have never sat at a potter's wheel. I've seen a potter at work maybe one time. But I've never tried to shape a plain, round, brown, two-pound ball of clay into something beautiful or usable. So I know very little about being a potter. So what am I to do with this text? Well, the answer is YouTube. (laughs) Look at YouTube. And so I found this uh, video called Beginning Wheel Throwing Class. And the instructor begins with two pieces of advice. One, keep the clay wet. So continually the potter is dipping his hand into a little pot of water and applying it to the clay. So keep the clay wet. And secondly, keep the clay spinning. If you don't, what happens? Falls apart. Or collapses. So keep the clay wet and keep it spinning. And then I heard this instructor say, there are two main uh, ways to use the clay. One is called to cone up. And so you squeeze with both hands as the clay is spinning and as it's wet. So the clay has nowhere to go but up. And so we're shaping something upward. Or the second one is cone down. And so here, the potter pushes down the clay with one hand while the other hand is at the side of the the ball of clay, and perhaps that would form a bowl. The pressure from the top would depress the clay while shaping the other part of the clay with the hand on the side. So cone up or cone down. Two simple instructions. And then the instructor on YouTube said, to learn how to be a potter, one must practice... Ruining the clay. One must practice ruining the clay. Do it till you wreck it, was the phrase used. So a potter's equipment in Jeremiah's day had two wheels instead of one. The vertical above turns on on an upper smaller wheel, and research shows the lower wheel was turned by a second person. But anyway, Jeremiah uses this real-life metaphor of a potter to describe describe the relationship of God and humanity. 
It's not difficult to trace this metaphor as we read in Genesis early on in one of the accounts of the creation that God, taking some liberty with the text, shapes Adam or Adam, earth, from a lump of clay or from the dust. Our first two verses from Jeremiah, Jeremiah finds Jeremiah in a potter's shop. And he observes the potter at his wheel. And this is what he sees in verses 3 and 4. He notices the potter is not discouraged when the clay collapses. The potter simply reworks, recycles, reuses the clay until, until it seems good to the potter. 5 through 11 is some interpretation from Jeremiah's point of view. Like a potter recycling the clay, whether it is lost or failure, God starts over again with us. It's the story of King David or Ruth and Naomi or you and I. God is like a potter who not only can reshape a fallen piece of clay, but also people. God shapes and reshapes us until God is pleased with the result. We call it grace. A lifelong endeavor. And there's a lot of truth in that metaphor that fits, except that Jeremiah doesn't stay there. The potter is free to do with whatever the potter wants to do with the clay. That's acceptable, right? Shape it or destroy it according to the behavior of the people of Judah is Jeremiah's word here. The theological view here is that God also molds us like clay or the nation. And depending on our behavior, God will either build us up into a useful piece of pottery or God's mind can be changed by our bad behavior or by our good behavior. And I find that a bit troubling. I don't know where you are, but it gives me a bit of struggle. It's this cause and effect kind of thing that troubles me. Can I, can we, can we actually control God by being good or by being bad? There's a simple way of saying it. Can we really do that? On the other hand, the larger picture, I think what Jeremiah is trying to communicate here is that he is saying to the nation of Judah, you are headed for destruction. And he's using language of God is deciding upon about your behavior one way or another, whether or not the destruction will happen. It doesn't quite add up for me. Uh, it doesn't quite measure up to Jesus' response to the disciples of John 9. When the disciples see a man born blind, and they want to know if this man born blind, was it because of this man's sin or his parents' sin? If you follow the the words from Jeremiah, to, to, to translate there. But it is here that the metaphor of clay as humans breaks down, as all metaphors will do. Because we are not mere clay, balls of, balls of clay, two-pound, brown, wet or dry balls of clay. We are not that. Clay is just this inanimate substance that has no thought or care about being shaped or molded. It is simply clay at the mercy of the potter to its final shape. But we are not like that. Even at birth, to some degree, 
we have already been molded in many ways. As we grow and mature, we can choose to continue to allow ourselves to be molded by the potter, or we can resist God's desire to shape us into the person that God sees us being able to become. So yes, do we not bring disaster in ourselves at times? Yes, we do, as individuals or as nation. Certainly. Yet other times, disaster comes to us apart from our choices. I don't think the choices of the Bahamas brought on the hurricane. I don't buy that. So things happen, either because of us or not because of us. But Jeremiah's main point, whether we like his theological view or not, he calls for people to reconsider their reluctance to be shaped by God's teaching and God's character and to be shaped by God's deepest, deepest values. So, into what is God shaping us? Into whom does God desire to shape us? As a people, as individuals, as a congregation, into whom is God shaping you and I? Like a multi-million dollar corporation that intentionally shapes a culture of values and philosophy and purpose with employees and projects and relationships. So I believe God wants us to be shaped by God's values and purpose. And one of those values central to God's heart is reciprocal hospitality. That means two-way, of course. And from our bulletin, I'll read our emphasis for these six weeks. Today is our second and six-part series called Living the Hospitality of God. The Bible's word for hospitality is philoxenia, the safe place where strangers are transformed into guests and friends. And in this series, we are hearing God's challenge for us to share God's own hospitable heart, or God's values, for those who are most vulnerable. So Luke 12 takes us on a slightly different trajectory. Luke 12 tells us that we do well to count the cost of following Jesus, and I will add, into radical, reciprocal hospitality. In so many words, if we're going to be pliable like clay, if we're going to allow ourselves to be shaped by God, there are costs or risks of being pliable or refusing to be pliable. Luke said it this way. He saw the large crowds and he turned to them and said, whoever comes to me and does not hate, strong word, right? Father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And he makes his point with an illustration. For which of you intending to build a tower or build something does not first sit down and estimate the cost. Because if we don't, it can be embarrassing. If it's, the estimate is way low and you have to tell your client, oh, by the way, you're going to need $10,000 more. Sorry about that. You won't stay in business very long. So count the cost is, is something that's 
Luke is making the point here about following Jesus. Count the cost, and we're going to apply that to count the cost of being hospitable in a reciprocal way. So I've been thinking about that. What does it mean to be pliable and applying hospitality? I think being pliable means that change is constant and change is expected. I think pliable means we never know how it's going to turn out until the end. There are fears to overcome in being pliable. There can be criticism from others when we are radically hospitable to the most vulnerable. This criticism can sometimes, as Luke suggests, come from our own families. And then there's our own ego to tame. There are competing worldviews. And there's this thing of giving up one's inward condescending attitude about those whom we are serving because that's just the one-way act of hospitality. And then, then there's the lure of me first and to hell with the rest. And then there are the principalities and powers underneath, undergirding, that tell us to be in control, to use violence to get ahead, to use violence indeed to be hospitable. The costs can go on and on of being pliable or not. Which takes me to a chapter in Luke, four chapters ahead in Luke 10. In this scene, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples on a mission trip. And they must have been shocked at the instructions. Don't take your purse. Don't take any extra baggage. Don't take hardly anything. Be vulnerable. Stay in the same household. Eat what is set before you. That can be a challenge, can it? Two-way hospitality. They were sent to share the good news of Jesus. So they're the ones providing the good news, but they are to do this as they receive from those whom they are sharing the good news. Now that is really radical stuff. In one small way, Loretta and I experienced this this kind of concept. We have for some years been renting a row house in Lancaster to refugees. Before you put a crown on our heads, we do benefit from that, monetarily, but we also benefit other ways. Our first family was from Russia, a Turkish Muslim family. And we are the, we are the landlords, right? So we are the ones with the power. We are the ones with the know-how, the language to get along in this world in America. When they first came, they knew no English. And yet, we soon learned quickly that when we knocked on the door, we were invited in to, t- to have tea with them. We weren't counting on that. We had things to do, places to go. You need to get the picture. Tea was not just liquid. 
They made a meal for us. Wonderful Ukrainian food. And we soon learned, and we certainly had to count the cost of, well, we'd like to go visit them today, but do we have the time to receive this radical hospitality? So there was a bit of struggle back and forth. But over time, we became good friends. We were invited to their annual uh, Turkish Muslim gatherings. I was given a Koran. I shared my Bible. We were invited to the daughter's wedding, which lasted to the wee hours of the morning. And they graciously said, you can leave if you want to at 12 o'clock. <laughs> and we didn't eat till 10. And then we were invited to dance with the other English people. They arranged it so we wouldn't be too embarrassed by, by trying to dance like they do. So we did. I don't think anybody has that on social media. But we were honored to be invited to this wedding. We were treated like royal guests. But yet we are the ones who were supposed to be helping them. Eat what is set before you. Leave your baggage behind. Last night, Lorette and I had friends to our house, and Luke was telling us about his involvement with Love, Inc. And he has a unique relationship with a person. Instead of uh, receiving a phone call to take somebody here or there, he's been working with the same person for four years. Love, Inc. approved that, even though it isn't part of their regular uh, protocol. So Luke runs errands for this man, grocery store, you name it. And there came a time, now, now I'll have to explain a little bit, Luke is from Leola. Never ventured much into Lancaster inner city. Certainly knew his way around, but really didn't know some of the heart of Lancaster. But he's learning. The man whom he is serving said to him, you know, it's all one way. You're doing everything for me. And Luke said, oh, no, you're, you're teaching me. And indeed, he shared with the man what happens. Luke comes to this man's door, and he's invited in. And without having any formal instruction, Luke has been instructed in how to get along in the city. And so there can be some tense moments in the neighborhoods. And Luke has learned how to deal with some of those. And he kept sharing about this two-way thing of, of working with Love, Inc. and this client, so to speak. You are teaching me, he said. And so when we are pliable, when we are shapeable, God's values, we can receive from others even from the vulnerable from whom we wish to be advocates. And so while it is certainly humanly tempting to try to shape God into a certain image, Isaiah has some things to say about that. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay in chapter 29? Shall the thing made say of its maker, he didn't make me, or the thing formed, say of the one who formed it, he has no understanding. Chapter 45. 
or earthen vessels with the potter, does the clay say to the one who fashions it, what in the world are you making? Or your work has no handles. Isaiah 64 continues with more of a confession. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And Paul writes in chapter 9 to the letter to the Romans, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? Again, revisiting the right of the potter to shape the clay for the potter's use. And so we've talked about the cost of being pliable and the rewards of being pliable. And I think there is a a very succinct reward that's kind of playing in the background here. I say it this way. Being pliable means we will change. We will be adapt. We will adapt. We will be reshaped. And we will become more and more like Christ. And being pliable means that we will be able to see more and more Jesus in everybody we meet when we take the risks to do so. As Mark Twain said in the 1880s, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of people and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all of one's lifetime. Said Mark Twain, who did indeed travel the world. And so it's similar for, tra- for followers of Jesus. Travel with Jesus is also an antidote to all kinds of hardened positions. It's in the words of our Lord's Prayer. Not my will, but yours. Not my way, but yours, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. <laughs>